Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we will be looking at the recently released Danish film Godland, which is currently streaming on Criterion. But before we get to that, we're going to be doing one of our what we've been reading episodes. So kind of catching up on some of the highlights on our reading lists. Uh, So Ariana, I'd like you to go first. What's the first book that you want to share with the audience? So it is a book, despite the fact that I've read a lot of comic books. Well, are all your choices going to be like comic book graphic novels? There's going to be a mix between books and then like okay. uh, graphic novels. Okay. So the first book I want to talk about is We Had to Remove This Post by Hannah Berwerts and Emma Result. It is um it is translated from Dutch. So um, it is a book that is talking about a group of people that work for an unnamed internet company and much like YouTube, scanning through and figuring out what needs to be removed. And then also talking about their mental health. Oh yeah. I've heard about this. And the cut of like services that they're getting during this time. Um, Does it have like psychological horror elements to it? Yes. So, um, our main character is called Kaylee. So Kaylee takes the job because it's a better paying job than the past job that she had. She is um, kind of awkward. And it's also sort of like, it's one of those narratives when you go in, you don't know if you can trust her fully as to what is going on. Unreliable narrator. So she's an unreliable narrator. She talks about um, the group of friends that she made during uh, this time, but it's basically a letter being sent to a lawyer because a group of her friends are suing the company that they worked for. And she's saying, I don't want to get involved in the the whole thing, but I will give you the account of what I saw what was happening through, because she's like, I'm not interested in the money. I'm not interested in people knowing my name, but I'm just going to give you the facts of what happened. And And so that's the book is her account from her her point of view and so she gives a vague mention that like in her prior job she kind of like became attached to certain people only to realize they weren't really friends of hers like almost indicating that the same probably was going on there but it's also like this incredibly sad discussion that is going on between mental health and the consuming of internet media um one of her co-workers turns out to be alt-right or a flat earther when they're kind of confused as to he didn't start that way they have a jewish friend who has to st- stand there and listen to people like talk about anti-semitic and, and, stuff like, yeah. and she happens to be gay and she starts a relationship with one of her co-workers and how she starts to realize that her sexual preferences of porn are becoming extreme because of her exposure to all of this video yes and it's sort of like they talk about how even though the company has automated stuff that like an ai could do they're saying that they don't trust it but there's also this thing of it being like maybe the ai costs more and that's why they're going with humans and this impossible task of it being like well you need to be able to flag 
X amount of videos at X amount of time. And she's like, that's almost impossible to do because that means you would be speeding through. And she's like, not only are we looking for visual clues, we're looking for like verbal clues. So we have to sit there and listen. And Mm. it's like, it also goes into a mystery of what happened to a girl in one of the videos and how she starts searching for this person to figure out what's happened. But it's like, all left in the air because she is unreliable at times and it's also just why she ends up like at the end of like friendship breakups like romantic breakups on how she is made to feel that she's in the wrong only for it to turn out that the other person was perhaps taking advantage of her and how she can't help but now view the world in the regulations of these videos. Like, so she like- It makes you have a very like bleak outlook. Yes. Because you see the worst of humans. Because at one point she's talking to someone and her friend was like, well, why was that so-and-so, what they said was wrong? And all she's thinking about like article 7.5, like, you know, and then say, but it would pass. Like, even though they said of such offensive shit, it would pass based on the other companies her own views start to change and how she it's sort of like because of that she doesn't feel the threat that's going on to her life and her mental health and how she's just completely shut down in the end so it was very interesting to read because there's right now with ai being more and more used for writing and like for like digital art it still has to pass through humans for that and well to train the ai yeah train the ai and sometimes they have to be exposed to the worst of it because wasn't there some sort of like digital sweatshop kind of in somewhere in africa in chad yeah he was using something yeah like and they had to filter through like a bunch of like you know, necrophilia and pedophilia and like just the most violent kind of yeah. stuff and what does that do to their mental health when you want to say we're a progressive company but then you keep those people within those organizations like within that part of the organization and you never let them move up you never let them have like normal hours and you just use and abuse them much like they do in shipping um warehouses in amazon like when like meatpacking plants yeah where and slaughterhouses where you're first of all being exposed to a very different view of life yes and how the way bodies can just be dissected and broken down and how like yeah that's gonna have an effect on you but then when it's those kind of factory settings where it's a very dehumanizing element add on on top of something that's a pretty intense experience yeah, it can like warp your brain permanently. Yeah, so I think it's one of those that I would probably recommend people to read, but also be... Does it get into much detail about it, what they see? It doesn't, but it does so well on making you feel uncomfortable on... It's very good at implying Yes, things. the implications are enough. And there is some body horror, but it's the just even the implication of like a recording that she had with an intimate partner and how... They're like being asked to like view the uh, view it again, view it again. And like, and all she can think about is how would it go through with the algorithm that they're supposed to use in order to flag a video? And she can't 
see what's bad. She's just sort of like because she's been filtering through. She's been trained to see everything through the company's model. Yeah, can't feel anything anymore. Interesting. Uh, My first book, uh, bleak in its own way, but a little hopeful, uh, is Parable of Talents by Octavia Butler, which you have also read. Oh yeah, Yeah. such a good book. Uh, And so I had read uh, Parable of the Sower before we left the states to move to the Netherlands. And even reading that, I was just like, wow, she could see where things were headed. Yeah. And then reading Parable of the Talents is a continuation of that. Uh, so these both of these books uh, are concerned with a woman named Lauren Olamina, who's living at some point, I think, it's is it our past? I, I've never got a, a sense of exactly what year it is, but it's kind of close to our own time. Yeah, it's supposed to be in the future but the books were written in like the 90s Uh, and so the america has fallen into basically societal decay in the first book a lot most of it takes place inside the kind of gated community that she and her family live in in california and then this book takes place at acorn uh which is the community that they create in northern california that's isolated from most of the rest of the world And so the Lauren character in the first book developed it and she created it. And in this book, she kind of develops it. But it's the religious idea of earth seed, which is that human's destiny is to leave the earth and populate the rest of the universe. And so another tenet of that belief is in change, that uh, change is inevitable, that change is essentially what God is. And it's that no state of being is ever permanent. And you can see that through, you know, the life and death, right? We we live, we die. Uh, And so the book is, this one, Parable of the Talents, has another layer to the narrative, which is from her daughter, Larkin, who's an adult reflecting back on what she knows and what she doesn't know about her mother, because a separation occurs at a certain point in the story, which cuts Larkin off from having information about certain things. Uh, It is a world where a a demagogic president has ascended to power. He did so by throwing red meat to uh, fundamentalist extremist religious groups in America. And so as a result of his win, these militias pop up across the country that start imposing a very male, patriarchal, heterosexual ideology on everyone whether they want it or not and will torture and literally kill people uh it is a picture of america that feels sadly accurate and maybe more extreme than where america is right now but doesn't feel like an impossibility when you read it it feels like it's an extension of current events if there is nothing done to avert them like yeah this is where things are gonna go uh There's a lot about taking children from people who are deemed to be uh, heathens or blasphemous and then letting, you know, good, kind church families take these children in. There's stuff about race in there as the main character is black. And so her daughter is, I believe, mixed race. Because she's okay. I wasn't sure about the father. I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, And so the there's a lot of animosity from Larkin, the daughter, 
because she never really knew who her mother was. So through going through her mother's writings, through talking to people that were involved, she's trying to reconstruct an image of who this woman was. And it's interesting because in the first book, we're very much on the same page as Lauren, where we're with her, we want her to succeed. And it's just so interesting that Butler in her next book would then flip the tables and show us someone who does not see Lauren as a saintly figure. She doesn't see her as a villain, but she sees her as a very flawed person who made a lot of decisions that didn't take into account everybody's uh, concerns and needs and was oftentimes very singularly focused. And the book doesn't ever really give you the answer of, well, was Lauren right or wrong? It's just things happen. And we can interpret it as, oh, Lauren's prophecies were correct. Or you could also, on the other hand, just go, well, Lauren was just kind of keyed into the momentum of where things were headed anyway. Yeah, I like, I mean, I really love that book, but it's also this interesting thing of reading from a perspective of somebody who felt bitter towards her mother as to what had occurred, even though um, Lauren had no control as to where her daughter ended up. And also just assuming that her daughter was dead or just long gone during that time, especially because she was a black child. We also realized that in this sort of situation where the flow of information is not easily accessible, yeah, you could easily lose track of people and never see them again yeah, and never and know what like happened to them. Thing of like, her daughter just feels like embittered while Lauren is like, I've accomplished my goals. Yeah, and it's one of those where the book doesn't frame either of them as right or wrong. It just frames them as this is what they did and this is what their lives were. And they each tried to do what they thought was the best thing. Mm-hmm. And that left some bad blood between them, even though they don't really get a lot of time together in Larkin's adult years which is why I think Larkin is left just kind of pondering and wondering. Yeah. Uh, it's a book that will make you very frustrated if you're oh, yeah. into it. Just the things that happen when the sort of Christian militia shows up and uh, things that have to do with Lauren's brother. I feel like those were the parts that made me the angriest Yeah. was his devotion to this radical ideology that was clearly doing harm to people he claimed to love, but he just wouldn't let go of it because it was the only, it was like a life preserver in this chaos for him. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, very good book. It, tragically, uh, Butler died in her, I think, late 50s. And this was intended to be a series with more entries in it. And we're never going to get those. And I mean, yeah. I wouldn't even read some other author taking her notes and trying to do it. I wouldn't yeah. do it. It's not it's, worth it. It's one where I remember like the first time I read a short collection of hers and I was was that blood child yes yeah that's a very good collection obsessed and started reading her books and it's funny because there's still like a few more books that are a series that i could go finish but i'm always very hesitant not because i think i'm not gonna love them i know i'm going to love them but then that's it but it's it's over that's it (laughs) yeah i'm the same way with like cormac mccarthy and also butler too where it's like i kind of drip feed myself their work so that you know at this point in my life, I'm like, you know, I could die and not have read all these things. Like, we're the years are moving fast. Yeah. Uh, but I would rather die having books I didn't read than die and being like, but decades earlier have run out of stuff. And then you're like, there's nothing for me to explore and discover. Uh, but yeah, very good book. Uh, what is your next book on your list? You Were Never Really Here by Jonathan May- uh, Ames. Um, which I've never read it but I saw the movie we both saw that it was very closely tied to the movie Um, 
So it makes me even like the movie even more because it felt as if the director really just like sank into what the feeling was and brought it to life. Well, what's the plot of the uh, book? I mean, it's the same as the movie. Like Joe um, is has witnessed so many things that he can't erase from his mind because he used to be an FBI agent and a Marine um, having to do with his abusive childhood that left him damaged beyond repair. He's completely withdrawn from the world. He is... And people pay him to rescue their kids who've been kidnapped? Um, is that Because in the movie, I think that's what's going on. Yeah, right? in the movie, he's being paid, and it does, it's the same as the book. The book goes a little bit further as to what happens. It makes it even, like, even a little bit more gruesome as to the details. Um, but, like, he used to work in sex trafficking. This is basically a movie, like, if he you're... worked in sex trafficking or he worked in rescuing sex rescuing trafficking, because okay. uh, working in sex trafficking, because, like, it gets to the point that it's just like it. This is the like anti version of like that, what that like Christian movie that's been out, about, uh, like, yeah, I forget the name of it, uh, with Jim Caviezel, yeah, whatever that fucking movie that is, just a fucking where one movie. of the guys involved just got arrested for participating in I think child, the main guy, yeah, in child trafficking, and it's yeah. just like so. It has, again, it's dealing with the fact that, like, beyond, like, he already had, like, child abuse. Then he's working in a system that completely breaks him. He is having to rescue um, sex trafficked people and having to witness what has happened to them, especially when the people don't want to get caught and how that fucks up with his mental health. He is completely withdrawn from the world. The only reason that he is alive is because his mother is alive. He has to take care of her. So he wants to take care of her. Um, it is just, it's one of the few instances where I really like was reading a book that was violent, but for some reason I was okay with this violence because Joe is interpreted in such a way that feel <laughs> you feel empathy for him. But you also feel like he's not proud of what he's doing. Well, it's kind of in the movie. The yeah. same thing is it's this character where there's a palpable angst about doing this, but he doesn't really know what else to do. Yes. And it's just like how like when he gets to the uh, like the tipping point of having taken this job that is now turning back to go take everything from what he knows away from him. Um it's heartbreaking in so many ways because he has lived in isolation. So you start to wonder to yourself, was this all worth it? Like not allowing himself to love other people, not allowing himself to be friends with other people on how even the people who wanted to like, you know, hang out and be friends with him, he avoided them, but you know, the cost came in and now their lives are ruined or done. And like, Again, if you're the type of person that's just like, oh, like, I want to read something with action. This is something that I would, I would rather you read versus dumb kind of action. It sounds because like there's an emotional weight to there's an what happens. There's an emotional weight to it. And it's also a declaration of just being like, you know, an edgy, damaged person isn't going to be a cool guy all the time. Does it follow a similar... Uh plot trajectory without giving away spoilers or details as the the film 
Uh, it follows pretty closely. I think the film had more of a hopeful ending than the book. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, but you still get the sense that, like, Joe had a purpose. And now that things are crashing, then he's like, if my life is going to crash and burn, I'm going to make sure that you fucking crash and burn. Because if so he very just like, like destructive. Yes, because it's sort of like if he didn't love his life before and you came to fuck it up, what did you expect? Interesting. So he has nothing left to lose. Very good. Uh, my next book on my list is a collection of short stories, Runaway uh, by Alice Munro. And this is an author who I have never read before, but her name has been very uh, frequent. It's come up on like a lot of lists I've seen. Um the last time I can remember seeing her name was we had watched Pen15 and there was the episode about the uh, the mother that was focused yeah. on her. Yeah. And then one of my college friends, Jocelyn, had posted on Twitter that it reminded her of an Alice Monroe short story. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then recently, as I was trying to come up with a book to read, I was like, you know what? I'm going to read an Alice Monroe book. And I picked this one and it was very good. Uh, Monroe is a Canadian author, and her stories are very much like that episode of Pen15. They're just kind of, here's this character, and we're just going to kind of see them go through a thing and just look at how they deal with it. Uh, it's very grounded. If People in the audience are familiar with the writings of people like uh, Raymond Carver or Andre Dubas, very similar. There's not a single fantastical element in the whole thing. Uh, if anything seems fantastical, it's often revealed as just kind of coincidental, and there's like a real-world explanation for it. Uh, and the stories, I think, entirely focus on female protagonists. There's not a single one with a male protagonist. Uh, they're – the characters is often in some sort of transitionary point in their life. Uh, there's one story called uh, – or it's a series of stories, like a trilogy in the book that aren't labeled as a trilogy. But then as I read them, I realized, oh, this is the same character. But it, three very different points in her life. The story's uh, Chance, Soon, and Silence. Uh, and so the her name is Penelope. And in the first story, she meets a man on a train and feels attraction to him and then strikes up a romance to where she like goes to his house and he's not there. There's this other woman there who like watches his house. But it turns out she and the guy will like sleep together every once in a while. But once she realizes that this guy and this Penelope are in a relationship, it's sort of like she easily relents. There's no jealousy. She's just like, oh, he found someone. That's great. Then the next story soon, it's the same woman and she's visiting her parents and she has a baby with her. And okay. it, she brings a baby with her. Okay. And the baby was with this guy. Okay. And her parents aren't very happy because she's not married to the guy. And they just they don't really understand the situation. And Penelope kind of is struggling to understand the situation. And then the final part, silence, which is the most heartbreaking, is the entire story takes place over probably over a decade. And it's her becoming estranged from her daughter and then never hearing from her daughter again. Mm. And she and like and at one point someone's like oh i saw your daughter and she was with a husband and had kids and penelope has can't doesn't really want to reveal that she doesn't talk to her daughter anymore and just is like smiling and nodding along as this person is telling her this 
But then you just kind of realize like, oh, I'll never know any of them. They're just, they're strangers. So this woman is telling me about strangers and I have to be excited about that. The These strangers. Or pretend yeah. that you know what's going yeah. on. And it's, and so what you do in that trilogy goes through this sort of youth uh, maturation and then old age, but in very like heartbreaking ways of just kind of showing like the pain of going through this part of your life and the regret you feel as you go through those. Um, there's another, the title story Runaway is an interesting one. It's about uh, this woman who has a pet goat that she loves. And then the goat is gone one day and she's convinced her husband killed the goat because he's always said how much he hates the goat. And so she packs up and goes to the house of a woman that she has this, I think it's like a business association with. And she's like, I'm running away from him. And the other woman's always hated the lady's husband. And it's like, yeah, "Yeah, great, do it, do it. But then that doesn't happen. And it felt so real in the way you'll see people who have finally, they look like they finally reached a breaking point about an abusive situation. But then the fear sets in of what would I do without this? I don't know what life is without this. Yeah. And how they just go back and how if you're the person who was cheering them on, what can you do? Yeah. And that's such a hard situation to be in. Uh, The story Passion was a really interesting one. It's this young woman who doesn't have much connection in this town where she's living and befriends this guy. They start dating, get engaged. And then the guy's family really incorporates her in to the point that, like, she's almost like another daughter. But she's never met the older brother, who's like a doctor, I think. And then her fiance's brother shows up. And then immediately the woman is like, I'm going to have an affair with this guy. Like, I just know it's going to happen. And then a situation comes up where the two of them are alone. They're having to drive somewhere to pick something up. And they just end up having sex. And it's just, she realizes, yeah, my uh engagement's gonna be over like all of these things that i thought were gonna be over it's not like i'm gonna be with this guy either it's just like this is how all of this ends but it's like especially the mother of the family is so welcoming to her that you're just like wow what a horribly complicated situation that i would never want to be in because like you know she's gonna go back to being lonely when she had all these people in her life and you're just like but why do you have to do this like you don't have to do this. Like you Yeah, it's also like one of those like I imagine that is just like that pull where you're kinda like, Well, this mistake's gonna happen. I can't stop it. But you're just like Well then there's uh Trespass, which is another good story where uh or trespasses where this family moves to a new town. They I forget what it was. There's something about where they have to eat at the hotel restaurant for some reason. And this waitress starts talking about how much their daughter looks like her daughter. And where it goes is it feels like an episode of Dateline where you're like, but like I said, her stories are very grounded. So it never becomes too melodramatic. Everything that happens feels like, yeah, like that could happen. And how sad would it be for something like that to happen? But it's a collection that I thought you would really enjoy. Yeah, I'm like loaded up on my Kindle. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's some like liberal crap you would enjoy, Ramos. No. But I really liked it's it. Some too. femme shit. Yeah, I really liked it. It was my first reading of uh, Alice Munro, and I immediately was like, "Oh, okay, I can see why people like this author. She's very good." So, what's your final book on your list? It is Chips, uh, 
Zdarsky's run of Daredevil. Okay, which is still going on, but you've yeah. read up. Did you read up to the Daredevil and Electra? Yes, book? yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. So yes. don't talk about that book because okay. I have not yeah. read it, okay. but I read everything up through Devil's Reign. So yeah. I, I read that along a, a little while ago. Um, I. <laughs> I have very complicated feelings about Daredevil, and I'm assuming that everybody the comic does or the character, the character, um, which makes me interested to read beyond um, this like writer's version of him, just to see how I feel about Daredevil. It has introduced to me like this this idea that there are the superheroes that deal with the galactic slash like world ending events and then there's the street superheroes Mm -hmm. which i kind of enjoyed this idea and and then it's also very weird because like reading other comic books they'll be like you know what guys let's just eliminate the whole thing about streets and let's just all just work together and a part of me wants to be like no (laughs) like don't do that like i don't i don't like it when the the ones that could save the world are with the street people i'm just like you don't like the, the big cosmic <laughs> stuff i think it's just like it's i i it's like it's almost like a part of me wants to be like if i were to pick a favorite marvel character now i think daredevil might be on the top okay because it's just sort of like it's almost like to me is the equivalent of fucking watching a telenovela because I mean that's what comic books are the, really. they are but it's also because it's like how just conflicted he is and how sometimes I just want to be like Matt Murdock you don't fucking deserve the people in your life like he doesn't deserve like foggy like he doesn't like oh my fucking god how many times is foggy just sort of like dude please don't do this and he's like guess what I'm gonna do it I'm gonna go yeah I mean I feel like foggy <laughs> Nelson is always right I mean, just ignored all the time <laughs> Like, um, like I had a few problems here and there. Like he has a brief love interest that's supposed to be an affair with uh, a mob boss's with a mob boss's wife, wife. Yeah, and it just abruptly ends. Yeah, I felt like that storyline didn't. And play I had out a, well. and one of also my problems is having to do with like the way they illustrated her. One point they illustrated her like plus sized, and the next she's skinny. And it's just like... It's, Was it different artists? Yes. Yeah. And it like irritates the fuck out of me because there's like a consistency of how Matt looks like. There's a consistency of how Electra looks like. There's a consistency of like how Jessica Jones and... Uh, Luke Cage. Like Luke Cage look like when they're on... But this side character was like, oh, she's going to be fat. No, she's going to be skinny. She's going to just, well, all you need to know in order to identify her is that she wears glasses, guys. That's all that matters. And like Matt goes through these whole waves of emotions where he's like, I love her. No, I don't. This is just sex. Oh, no, she's not really interested in me. Like he just. Well, that run has a lot of Matt's love interests. I think like so many. Karen Page is not there, but. I th- oh, is she? I don't think so. No, it's like. But like you have Electra. Uh, but like you've got um, it's the lawyer from San Francisco that he yeah, works with. It's just like, and then he's like, the lawyer from Desert is she's the love of my life, uh. But uh, you know, I love Electra, and he's like going through this whole thing about being in love with both of them. But I did love that he's like, I don't feel that Electra gives a shit who I fuck. <laughs> well, <laughs> like I would argue with Electra, I do think they're trying to draw her with more greek features than she was originally no, given so she looks that's why I you can tell like, that she's not like an american like I, that's why i say like there's obviously like 
there are like certain details that they're following through like through and through about her about being like she has to have curly hair she has to like kind of a grecian nose yeah that thing they're following but when it came to the mob bosses just sort of like glasses yeah just glasses guys uh what did you think of the way that art candles the kingpin wilson fisk i like the fact that basically matt and fisk are going through the same thing but um it's, it felt like it wasn't a daredevil book it was a daredevil and kingpin book yes and that they have these parallel plots that then converge in the devil's reign storyline yeah um one of the things that does make it kind of like weird to to read afterwards is like so typhoid mary shows up because apparently like she's like posing as a nun she's posing as a nun she believes she's this nun and then she like awakens and I think it's supposed to be that Fisk put her there. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff her. that happened outside of Zdarsky's run, which I do like when writers do that. They take plot points from other writers' runs and then fold them in. Yeah, and like, But for someone like you, that was probably a little confusing as yeah, to what was happening. Then, like, I started getting into the Electra bits and they explain Typhoon Mary a little bit more because I'd never really encountered this character. Was that in the Electra miniseries? And the woman like, without oh, hair? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're just like, oh, you know, she hates men. And she's got this dual side. And then it's just like, it's also like the weird um, implications as to if she has, that apparently she had been with Matt in the past. I think she was another ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And like, but now she's with Fisk. Yeah. And it's just like, also I, this is a side note. I hate it when certain artists will take a liberty of sorts of how big certain characters or small they are. Because they're this, they kind of exaggerate his girth. Fisk, they just exaggerated to the point that I was like uncomfortable. It's fat phobic a little bit. <laughs> it's like it was not, I was uncomfortable more because like Typhoid Mary was like just so petite in comparison to him. And like, but for me, I feel like that's almost impressionistic. It's Fisk, like is a glutton not necessarily for food but for power he's somebody yeah. who gorges himself on power and so his physical appearance in the comics is a reflection of yeah that. like i have no problem with the fact that he's a big guy i think it's just more having to do with the fact that like when you switch it up upon artists suddenly she's like one fourth his, his yeah. size it's and, an odd couple and it's just sort of like and then the next one she's not so odd against him like she might be a, like a little over half his size, but like when they do it that way, it makes me feel uncomfortable because it's just like you're impl implying that they're having sex, and that's just something hey, that I don't. The NBA <laughs> players will have like five five girlfriends, you know, it's weird. Uh, um, this was your first encounter with Stilt Man, I believe. <laughs> what? Uh, it's there's the moment where a bunch of villains show up and start fucking shit up in Manhattan. Okay, and you have like yeah. Crossbones, I think, is there. <laughs> uh, was Bull Bullseye a part of that group? No. Because, yeah, I know he comes in later. Comes in and later. He, what do you think of Bullseye? Um, I really like the fact that they just are just like, he's just fucking insane. He's like, like the he's... Joker to Daredevil. Yeah, and it's just like, I like the, also, the implication of Fisk just being like, I'm going to be able to control this dude. And he's you like, no, you can't do that. Uh, so Stilt Man, you were introduced to him. It was just like... I think the book genuinely makes him scary. Yeah, they do. Like, it's that interesting thing that, like, 
I did love that part where all these villains come in. It was very exciting. Because the villains, some of them are kind of like, um, this is too much. Like they're like I think Rhino is there. Yeah, yeah. like Rhino's one of them that they're sort of like, hey, I am all for like trying to kill Daredevil. the Daredevil, but he's like, I don't feel comfortable killing this many people. I don't like this destruction. It's sort of like they don't want to destroy a community, they just want yeah. to get revenge on the guy yeah, who locked them like, up. Some of them are like, I have to live here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like um, and then the owl that, i feel like they i wanted more because i felt like there's something interesting about this guy he's so weird yeah he's like really weird that there's hammerhead that i kind of knew about but it was just another thing to actually be like encounter these characters i do love how like matt is constantly being told like dude there's there's so much you don't fucking understand. And he's like, but I understand it. And it's just like, no, you don't. Like, they're trying to explain to him how jail isn't good because he decides he's going to go pay for his sins and go to jail. Go to prison, yeah. And then, like... But then they let him keep his mask. They let him keep his mask. And I think what's really horrible is that his ex-girlfriend comes from San Francisco. Foggy. They're like, yeah, we got this. We're going to, like, make sure that you don't have to go to jail. And then... Matt interrupts them. Yeah, all their work just just shits on it. I'm gonna go to prison. Like, he shits on their... And, like, Foggy is, like... Foggy stayed out two nights in a row trying to write this shit out. (laughs) For Matt to just crap all over their arguments. And he doesn't even tell him. And then he's like, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm just doing what's right. Well, I think that's the carryover from... And I need to go back at some point and read Frank Miller's Daredevil run. But he's the one who kind of kicked off this Daredevil as having all this internal religious conflict. And... I see that in Zadarsky's run. He's also playing that up of Matt's constantly obsessed with the idea of like redemption and how do you atone for your sins? It's also this fucked up thing that he's like having extramarital sex constantly. Yeah, there's a lot of sins he's able to ignore. (laughs) Like he's having affairs and he's just like, well, I'm going to just, you know, Daredevil needs to die. And then when everybody starts dressing up as Daredevil, he's like, well, I guess I got to go back out as Daredevil. So he said, well, then that means Matt's got to (laughs) die. And I love that, like, I think one of my favorite, like, tidbits was, um, so, like, he's going through the superhero community, um, trying to have them remember who he is, like, who his, like, like, secret identity is. The purple man's children. Yeah. (laughs) I love somebody listening and go, the who with the what now? (laughs) The purple man's children. What the hell is that? Kilgrave. It's Thaddeus Kilgrave. (laughs) Everyone knows who the purple man is. like they and like and so he is talking to spider-man and he's just like i'm so and so and spider-man remembers and they're like hugging and spider-man's like i really love you you're one of my best like superhero pals i'm never gonna tell you who i am (laughs) well spider-man's history with revealing his identity as a whole but you know that but i love that he just like tells the dude i love you but, but not you're not going to know who the fuck <laughs> It's just sort of like, okay. Right, well, the final book uh, will be mine. And it's one that I read uh, very Yours? Recently. Yeah, I wrote the book. It's uh, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Niels. It's a nonfiction book. And Phil is a communist who participated in... Uh, the Occupy Seattle movement when Occupy Wall Street was going on. 
Uh, he was present in Ferguson, Missouri, when the first uh, protests started before George Floyd. So the, the protests before. Uh, he worked in rural China for a while. So he has a lot of life experience. That's and he worked in like a, a work release program because he was convicted of rioting as part of Occupy Seattle, and that was a very eye-opening section. Uh, and so his book is a light mix of things that have happened to him, but more focused on the hinterland, which would be those parts of America where they're not even what you would call rural, like the country. These are places that are desolate. Often uh, sort of one omni industry controls things. So like oil or some sort of military or uh, minerals or some sort of refinery type of situation. And so the entire community is often built because this industry is there. So it's not towns that are coming somewhere because it's near a river. It's they're show being built so that the people who come there to work in the mines or help in drilling the oil have a place to like sleep and eat. But the conditions are often not very good. And so he spent some time talking about the rampant drug addiction that occurs in those places because their bodies are being destroyed as a result of the labor. Their isolation from the rest of society is having de deleterious effects. And so he explains like, yeah, it would make sense that these guys are like hopped up on meth or doping up on fentanyl, anything to try to like escape what's happening to them when they're not working. Uh, he also just talks about... Uh, the disconnect between the rest of the country and these places, how we often don't know anyone that works there. We often have never been to these places. And that's all kind of by design by the establishment yeah. is they don't want us to understand the cost of that labor and the cost of those resources. Because if we were to see that regularly uncensored, we might decide we don't want those resources as much because the cost is too heavy. And it's the same thing that happens with like migrant populations or any group of BIPOC people, right? They're always gonna, going to be ghettoized in some way. They're going to be cordoned off from the rest of the supposed middle class or at least, you know, white white surviving poor, I guess we'll call them. Because it's not even really thriving or middle class. It's just, oh, it's the white people who are successfully living paycheck to paycheck right now. Yeah. Um, he talks about uh, in these communities where he would live, where you would have uh, cold storage trailers brought out because they didn't have enough room for all the fentanyl bloated corpses in the yeah. permanent morgue. So they would be stacking body bags in these things. Um, he, and so what a lot of it is kind of justifying the anger that people are feeling, but maybe aren't able to articulate clearly but it's that sense of things are not right. Something is wrong. We are hurting people to benefit ourselves. Uh, he also talks about the three percenters and the uh, Oath Keepers, which are two Proud Boy adjacent groups and are actually, I think, more of the serious threat. I think the Proud Boys are more of like a cosplaying novelty thing. Yeah, it's just a bunch of bros yeah. hanging out on the inter internet. But like your three percenters are very serious about this. And how they have are kind of adopting some of the tenets of communism, but through this uh, fucked up fascist lens where the idea of mutual aid has become very important to three percenters and oath keepers in these hinterland communities, but focused only on providing it to white people in those communities in order to shore up their support down the road. 
and that the three percenters and the oath keepers are calling them nazis isn't necessarily the most accurate name because the goal of nazis were to conquer the world effectively through their allyships with the other axis powers but the three percenters and the oath keepers do not have uh those types of goals in mind at least at this moment it would be more equivocal to they want to create almost like a fiefdom in which they are the viking chieftain and they have slaves and they have a harem of women and that they're at the top of this rather small enclosed pyramid yeah which to me is scarier because when you look at the scope of the United States and the remote corners of the United States where, yeah, you tell me that the law exists in the United States, but does the law exist in a small sunset, sundown town where nobody ever really goes except the people who live there? Because I think those people have invented their own law. We just don't see that they're practicing it very often. Uh, just a very good book that will – it's one of those reads that feels apocalyptic when you read it. But in an eye-opening way, it's almost like you're finally seeing things for how they are, not for how you've been told they are. Yeah. Uh, and there's a really good quote that I wanted to read. And so there's a book with a lot of really good quotes, but this one really stuck out to me. Uh, we are defined increasingly by work and debts and purchases, and each seems every year to resemble more the others until maybe sometime soon all three will simply fuse into a single form of near-complete evisceration. Our families grow smaller, our groups of friends diminish, our subcultures are evacuated of all sacrifice and intimacy until they resemble little more than many minor bureaucracies propping up the great palace of consumption. When some fragment of the communal does find some space to congeal in the world's wastelands and factory floors, maybe in the midst of a riot and the heat of a war in the cold, lonely life led in high steppes and deep mountain valleys not yet fully subsumed by crisis and capital, this fragment is ultimately found, pieced apart, drained of its intensity, until it also can be thrown into that same dead, world-rending dance. The ritual has neither name nor mother tongue, but we communists call it the material community of capital. So the idea that though there is a community within capitalism, but it is a community devoid of connection, devoid of meaning. It is just everything is processed, commodified, and sold, and that's it. And how you cannot find fulfillment in these types of things. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people are experiencing in the United States. They were talking about, you know, it's a record number of adult men in America claim they don't have any friends. And it's because of something like this. Men are seen as the backbone of the labor market. Women are in there too. But culturally and hierarchically, women aren't of most concern of the people I think who run the labor markets. They still want women in there, but they yeah. they come at them from a different angle than they do the men yeah. in terms of propaganda. With men, it's this, you are not a person unless you are laboring. And without labor, you have no value, you have no identity even. And the, I think the book does a very good job of also critiquing a lot of leftist groups that get so caught up in infighting over minutia which is in, I can see as a parallel to a lot of like uh, American Christianity where you get more and more denominations as more and more disagreements occur over things like, oh, well, when we baptize, should we fully subsume the person or sprinkling water on their head? When you're like, yeah. this is all like, wh what does this have to do with the end goal, right? Isn't the end goal of Christianity to like save the world from doom? And so when we put that, we see similar things happening in leftist, uh, communist, anarchist communities uh, 
the question should be about like, what is your goal here to shape everyone into exactly the thing that you want them to be or to save this world and then allow people to live communally while still attending to whatever fulfills them as a person, right? As long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say Hinterland, if it's a pretty slim book, I'm not going to say it's the easiest book to read, but it's certainly not one of the harder books I've read about like politics and communism. I think it's very accessible to someone who is willing to pay attention as they read it. And it, like I said, it's very eye-opening. You see things like the work release program and just how it's this treadmill that where you never get anywhere, where you're constantly being screwed over. And so we see like our systems of supposed rehabilitation in America are just more punitive nonsense that doesn't help these people attain anything that they could need to survive. And on that happy note, uh, <laughs> those were our uh, what we've been reading that we would recommend to you right now. Uh, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the film Godland. Godland is the latest film from Danish director Hilmer Palmason. At the end of the 19th century, a young Danish priest is sent to a remote part of Iceland. The deeper he travels into the unforgiving landscape, the more he loses touch with his own reality, his mission, and his sense of duty. Uh, this is based on a true story to an extent, a box of... Uh, I believe it was eight wet plate photographs was the only thing that was left behind from this priest. And so the film has taken these eight photographs that he took and constructed a story around them. And you'll know if you watch the movie, which moments are meant to be the photographs because they have very distinct scenes of him taking photos and the film, uh, the aspect ratio, which is a, a 133.1 aspect ratio is designed to look like the framing of the photos you would have made on a camera like this from this time period. Uh, so, Ariana, what did you think of Godland? That it was beautifully lit. Um, amazing shots. If you are a person that might get seasick just by watching things on the sea, you might feel that way. Because well, at I the very felt, beginning. Yeah, at the beginning, I felt that way a little bit. Well, you do realize how far over the sides of the boat tip when you're in the ocean because you're like oh you can just fall right out of a boat like it's very easy to do um i one of the things that i do find very interesting is that at the beginning of the film while lucas is talking to his superior there is a remark on how young and healthy he looks and if that is pinned into your mind and then towards the end how sickly and like scrawny yeah. and uh, unappealing he looks to a certain extent towards the end and the film kind of has these little like act break moments so that then when we catch back up with lucas and it might be a few weeks later you just see his deterioration as the film goes on yes um it is a story basically about um icelandic people being against the danish people being like on their territory but is it is also a story that it is that they've already been colonized to a certain extent even if those people don't want to admit it to themselves when like they've intermarried there's children in the movie that are half icelandic half danish so it's become it's gotten to a point where like you can't really separate the two cultures anymore they're so intertwined at this point 
but there's not been a good examination of the hierarchy of power here. Yeah. But the Danish clearly have more power than the Icelanders. Yeah. And it could be often confusing if you're thinking to yourself, is this about being colonized, especially when they meet with the others once they get it to like this shore because everyone is dressed alike. So there is not much of a difference until the mother tongue is being spoken and there lies a confusion and there is also like this resistance that Lucas has, even though he's been told you need to adapt to the people and he the never culture. Does. And he does it like there's at the beginning of the film, he's sitting with his translator. He's repeating Icelandic words back and forth to the tra- uh, like translator. And then he asks him about, well, what about weather? And he starts listing off all these names. Because I think Icelandic people have more nuanced terms for weather. So it's not just snow. They have like a dozen different words for the different kinds of snow it could yes. be. Because to them, there aren't other kinds of weather, really. There's like snowing or not snowing. So then you have to have variation within that. Much like um, Inuit people when it comes yeah. to like their own culture, when it came to circuit certain african tribes when it came to the color green they had different versions of it and they didn't have the color blue on there so it was a different variations is having to do that you understood in depth what that meant so you had to give it a name well there's a lot of assumption that we make about other cultures that we haven't directly encountered where we just assume they're carbon copies of our own yeah not realizing there's a whole history behind them of things that happened or didn't happen to them that is an antithesis to our own culture and how that's going to shape them and they could come to very different conclusions than us and that they're not wrong and we're not wrong it's just oh we we came to different places as a result of what happened to us and so it is one where you're watching lucas struggle through this landscape only to be told that once he gets to like this farm there are two young women with the father and the father is like why did you travel through when you could have just sailed here Yeah, because they're on the coast and he's like well i wanted to know the land and it's like and as a result of that like half a dozen men die (laughs) yeah half a dozen men die and the his the person who's leading him through resents him heavily for it yeah because they didn't have to do this lucas didn't have to prove himself in this way but it's that sort of the colonizer wanting to have the adventure kind of a thing it's also the colonizer wanting to basically state that he won over the land somehow. he conquered the land yeah and it's the film spends a lot of time focusing the camera on that landscape and i think emphasizing the harshness of it but almost like the strangeness of it uh because we're talking about like arctic circle kind of environments yeah and that is where you start to it's almost like deserts where it becomes very alien to those of us that live in more temperate regions Mm -hmm. where you're just like the plants don't always necessarily look like plants the the land how flat and vast everything is there which you can see for so far, but there isn't anything to see, really. It's just... Like, there's no trees, yeah. there's no mountains. It's there's... just tundra that keeps going on and yeah. on and on. Uh, and I thought that was a very... I think the film did an excellent job of making that landscape feel very visceral. Like, you you understood what it would feel like to stand in those places. 
yeah. how like uncomfortable it like how biting the wind would be uh and you can also see that through like you know lucas's face as it gets wind chapped and it's you can see the effects it's having on him and the film also it's in like two halves yeah there's the lucas's odyssey half at the beginning and then there's lucas establishing the church in the second half yes uh, which half did you feel like you you got more out of? Do you think? I think the second half, even though I did like the first the first like half, you needed like, the first half. Like the first half really sticks to you the more you start talking and contemplating about it. The second half sticks because there's more people, there's more dialogue, things are being made more explicit in that yes. second half. That because Lucas can't talk to these people and his translator dies really early that the dialogue doesn't become as important until that second half. Yes. Uh, and the film is essentially the two characters that the film is centered on are Lucas and then Ragnar, the Icelandic guide. Yes. Uh, and Ra- I think Ragnar was also a very fascinating character, especially the turn he makes near the end of the film where he suddenly is like, I want to become part of your clergy. I want to become a man of God. And how he gets to that point of he's incredibly resentful towards Lucas. And to me, it felt like he was going, fine, I submit to your colonizing. Turn me into one. I don't just want to be colonized. Turn me into one of you then. If this is like the only options that are being left to me, then make me into one of you. Make me a priest. Well, it's not even just make me a priest. Then forgive me of all the sins that I've uh, I've done. Yeah. And he starts listing his sins. And some of them are against Lucas. Like yeah. at the end of the day, like it, and it's the also the division between the sisters that we end up meeting. Because we have Anna, who was born in Denmark, came over as a child, but can remember, and but is then determined to go back at some point. And then Ida, who was born in Iceland and has that for her, that is the world, and has no interest in leaving. Yeah, and is a little bit less traditional. And less caring about like wanting to get this approval from this priest. Because Lucas, the big thing is more than a priest, he's I think he's far more interested in being a photographer. Because a lot of film is taken up by him wanting to photograph people. And I think there's a thematic importance in that, in that to be a photographer at this time was to demand a lot of control. Because this wasn't a, hey, everybody, look, and you snap the photo. These types of cameras are the ones where you have to, like, sit there and let it be exposed to the sun on the plates. And so you have to get people that will sit still for a considerable amount of time. And that this is almost reflective of that colonization, right? I want to pose you. I want you to do as I tell you so that I can create the pretty picture that appeals to me. But he's not understanding he's dealing with a culture that has – submitted in a lot of ways to the chaos of the natural world and that is something that can't be controlled and it's part of the dramatic irony of the movie is that there is this natural force that is beating against lucas every second the moment he arrives and he cannot win against and therefore he then blames that upon its people as yeah. if its people had some control over the environment and not understand they have come to live in harmony with it that's why they're not bothered by it yeah is they've submitted because what else can they do there's no other option you cannot control the weather uh and so it's 
interesting to me is that a character like Ragnar, who is Icelandic and is presented as the heathen compared to Lucas, right? That you could argue that Ragnar and the Icelandic people are actually closer to a concept of God than Lucas in that they have accepted the natural world for what it is. They know they cannot reshape it or change it in any meaningful way. And Lucas refuses to acknowledge that fact. He believes that everything can be tamed under the banner of this denomination of Christianity that he follows. Yeah. Also, just like the arrogance that Lucas has because there's a scene in where two young couples are getting married in the unfinished church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the father of Carl. the two girls, Carl, asks him, why did you not marry that couple? Because to him, it's important. It's sort of like, if you're going to build a church here, you need to integrate yourself with the community. And Carl is a Dane and who, like, you're a Danish priest. Why are you not doing this? And, like, who has integrated himself because he had an Icelandic wife. Yeah. And uh, Lucas's response was not an un- an, an unmade, like, unfinished church. Because I'm sure there's, like, you have to sanctify the church. There's all these like ultimately hollow rituals that like I get why people do them but at the same time we live in a material but reality and none of that really matters it doesn't matter when no there's no other vigilant eye except your own yeah it's yeah. not as if the church is going to receive a letter to indicate that, that they hadn't followed through every like little ritual and therefore like they have to go get remarried or that marriage is like no like when also being blind to the idea that you could ingratiate yourself into this community better by having performed that wedding by doing that you're marrying the couple but you're also marrying yourself to the community because you're showing that i have participated in one of you know the great sacred rituals yeah the joining of two people together in marriage and especially that they're wanting to be married in a Christian church should be a sign that they're like, they're open to the ideas he's bringing. Yeah. But because it's not, once again, it's like the way he is with the camera. It has to be the way he wants it. Mm-hmm. And there can be no other way. Uh, and so what do you think? They, they're, do you feel that there was a legitimate relationship between Lucas and Anna, the oldest daughter? Or did you feel that was more her desperately trying to find someone that could get her the hell out of there? I think she wanted out. Yeah, like because there really was, wasn't anything appealing about Lucas. I think it was also the fact that it was like he's the other, like the only other young man around her age. True. Yeah. That she and she also has this thing where she prefers to speak Danish, which is um, kind of confusing at times. But I think it's also this super like like she thinks she's superior from yeah. all of them because of that versus her father who easily speaks Icelandic. And it's part of the community. And then Ida, who speaks almost nothing but Icelandic. Yeah. But is also having to play translator for uh, Ragnar at times. And, like, it's this interesting thing where, like, since the assumption is that Lucas is there, Ida at one point is like, well, if you're going to marry your sister, my sister, you have to marry me because we are inseparable. Like, we are basically one human being. And it is this interesting thing that then you see the father trying to explain, like you, like to Anna, like you are not to be with this man because um, he sees Lucas for the phony that he is. He sees him, but also it's like this interesting thing that Ida asks asks him, like, well, what type of like he's like he's not the type of man we need around here in this land, and she asks him, what type of man do we need? And there is no answer. 
Like, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't really know. Yeah, because it's sort of like even though he has fallen in love with this land, he married an Icelandic woman. He has to understand to some certain degree he is almost the same as Lucas. Yeah, he's like he's just, an outsider who came and conquered a part of the land. Yeah, and is living there, but then like um, expects people to be almost like his daughter Ida versus his daughter Anna, who is determined to leave at some point. Well, I think the film does a good job of pointing out kind of the inherent failures of colonialism. The, and if you look at every colony that's ever happened, it has failed. Now, that doesn't mean the colonizing nation is no longer there. It just means the promise of the colonizer to come in and improve life in the colony never plays out that way. Life is always made worse. Yes, they advance the technology that's present. Great. But the way they destroy the spirit of the people who live there is a failure because you're all you're doing is you're just basically uh, imposing your culture and your beliefs onto a group of people who were fine. Like they weren't asking you to come. There's no colonized nation that ever implored an outsider, please come and colonize our island. We need you so desperately. It's journal. They weren't even aware that the colonizer existed. And even and not knowing it that and like then finally knowing they're there doesn't change anything. They still want to live life in the way that they want to live life. Yeah. Uh, and what the colonizer ultimately does is impose their worldview. Like the uh, the English that came over on the Mayflower were appalled to see that the uh, what is it? It's the Massasoit were the tribe uh, the, in sort of New England or what would become New England, the indigenous people there had the women doing all of the agriculture while the men did the hunting. And to the English, no, the agriculture and the hunting were both the, the work of men. But to these native people, they didn't have any problem with the arrangement. I mean, there may have been individuals that didn't like it, right? But collectively as a society, they were kind of like, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, but it was offensive to the colonizer. So then the colonizer ended that practice. And I've seen in other pieces of media where you'll see like a Native American man who's having to like plant and grow his own food, how from their perspective, that's viewed as like an insult. Because what you did was you took a system that we understood the balance of, and you're humiliating me by making me do this. Now, that also brings up some gender things about why would you be humiliated by doing something a woman did, Native man? I don't, I think it more has to do it's with It's just more of imposing a will. It's opposing a will. And I think it, like, for example... When America was being colonized, they didn't really view like what they were doing as farming. They thought it well, was they didn't view it as nature. culture. They it just thought culture. it as like that's just nature and not understanding that it went beyond there was an act of cultivation. And there was an on. act of cultivation and there was an act of using all the resources and understanding what it was. It's like you're not just you yourself, you're not only doing the farming. But all the fauna and all the animals around them are helping cultivate that, which is essentially like what uh, what we all want to be eating is basically organic. like organic way of growing shit. And they just... I love my food factory organic. <laughs> but like in this, there's a scene in Godland where Ragnar is laying out that net across a creek to catch food. And Lucas doesn't have any idea what he's doing. Ragnar tries to explain in Icelandic and Lucas is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's you realize how Lucas, for all of his sense of superiority, 
left to his own devices here would die of starvation. He wouldn't know how to find food here. Yeah. And so Ragnar, because he understands the land, is able to keep this colonizer fed. And that's something that happened a lot throughout history is the colonized were the ones keeping the colonizers fed. And what they got in return was destruction of their culture. Yeah. Uh, when I was watching this movie, it made me think of some other films that touch on some similar themes. I thought of Scorsese's Silence. Yeah. As a very similar movie where you have a man of the cloth who doesn't really have any knowledge of the culture he's entering into. And that lack of knowledge is his downfall because he doesn't understand that these people already have an established way of life and you may like it or you may not, but it really isn't yours to say whether they should or should not live this way. Yeah. Ultimately, like it inhibits their progress as a society to come in and forcibly change it. Because what you're doing is you're imposing your system, which is also full of flaws and not perfect. And it's going to create dissonance with the colonized culture, I feel like. I also thought of uh, Zama, directed by Lucretia Martel. Mm -hmm. It was that Argentinian film. I don't know if you remember it. And it was about the uh, official from Spain, or I think it was Portuguese, who was a colonizer and then he ends up going out with that expedition into the wilderness and it gets like real weird and surreal and like slowly but surely his party of colonizers just get picked off one after the other oh, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. very comedic it's like kind of a dark comedy yeah and i want to say that might have been an a24 distributed movie i don't quote me on that uh but i think like those two movies share very similar themes with godland uh, it is a long movie. It is two and a half hours long. And you made a comment before we started watching it last night. You're like, huh, is this the kind of movie we should be watching high? <laughs> and I even I had a little like, but like we got to do it for the podcast. And I think that trepidation comes out of the fact of some things that we know about Scandinavian filmmaking is it's often very quiet. Yes. Very slow moving. And if you have, you know, western induced adhd like we all have from mm -hmm. absorbing western media that can make you a little antsy but i'm delighted to say this movie did not feel like it was a slog like, yeah there's like times that for example that they're kind of like telling each other stories and that if you miss like a line here and there you're able to imply as to what's going on but it's as the story is going you're like basically going down through the nature and the beauty of this place and how like folklore will link into like the waterfalls and the greenery of the moss and how like the land feels like not completely solid and um the implication of like your mind going wild because the sun has not set in weeks <laughs> and like it is again one of those that's just sort of like it's it is slow at times and then it'll pick up when it's necessary but it does want to lull you into almost like this false sense of security at times of like oh no it'll be like we'll just be going through this part of the land and it'll be fine and then chaos kind of erupts like out of nowhere well, there's almost kind of a fairy tale-ish quality to it yes. it feels like you're listening to a fable yes because there's a very clear lesson at the end that's kind of spelled out by one of the daughters a little yeah. bit 
Um, this director, Hilner Palmason, has made some other films. I think this made me very interested to kind of explore more of his work. And a lot of these actors are recurring players in his other films. Uh, the actors who play Lucas and Ragnar actually played uh, a son and father in another movie. And he also frequently collaborates with the same cinematographer, Maria von Holzwolf, who's a Swedish uh, cinematographer, who I think, with along with his direction, did an amazing job. Yeah. There's a shot of the oldest daughter, Anna, when she's getting her portrait taken. And the lighting in that scene and the way it's framed is just... You can tell that a lot of time and thought went into how they wanted this shot to look. Yes. Uh, and you get that with a lot of the scenes. There's a lot of interesting tracking shots in the movie that feel very ponderous and slow. Because one of the things I thought when we first started watching it, because of the aspect ratio, I thought, oh, are these going to be all static shots to emulate the idea of the camera, right? The photograph. But they're not. They do move the camera, but within this very constrained uh, aspect ratio, and there's these great shots where the camera just goes kind of like in a 360 very slowly. And at first you're just thinking, oh, this is just kind of like a little scene they threw in there or something. But if you're paying attention, there's information being revealed through the character action in this place that we get in little bits and pieces as the camera's moving that illuminate kind of what the way these communities work, what the interrelation, inter, like the relationships between these characters the, the unspoken things between them. And so, yeah, it's a very visually strong film. Like, yes, it is. Very strong. Uh, would you recommend Godland to our audience? Yes, but don't get high before watching it. Hey, we got high here. <laughs> uh, I would recommend, if you have the Criterion channel uh, subscription, it's already on there, so you might as well watch it. Uh, and it is a very... it's You get to see a place you've probably not spent much time looking at or clearly probably never been i mean i don't think a lot of people have ever been to iceland and you get to explore ideas about colonizing that are from a different perspective than we typically get in western media well that was the pop cult podcast for this week we hope you enjoyed our episode make sure to check our show notes for our relevant links to where you can find us and keep up with us uh, including popcult.blog, which is our website where we update with reviews of all sorts of things every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and more on the weekends. Uh, make sure you subscribe wherever it is you listen to this podcast so that you'll be notified when new episodes are up. If you check out popcult.blog right now, we have just kicked off for August a series we're calling Flashback to 1983, going through and watching a lot of 1983 films that I've never seen before. Some you've probably heard of, some you haven't. Uh, coming up next week, I'll be reviewing Terms of Endearment, as well as The Right Stuff, and a French film that I had just become aware of, Anus Amours, which ended up being really good. Uh, we're also doing this month a, a whole series on the Swedish death metal-inspired tabletop roleplay game Morkborg, where I'm playing through with the solo supplement Solitary Defilement, having a lot of fun with that kind of very over-the-top, violent kind of game. Uh, all month long, we'll be reviewing different television series. Today, we just did a review of Boots Riley's I'm Virgo. We've got The Bear coming up next week, uh, as well as continuing our Venture Brothers series and more. Well, uh, if you like what we do here and you would like to 
show us your thanks, you can do that by joining our Patreon. We've got lots of different uh, tiers that you can join that give you access to different things. I want to thank our patrons, Morphine, who donates at the sneak preview level, Becca and Matt, who donate at the $10 writer's room level. That lets them pick a movie every week, or every month, not every week, but every month for me to watch and review. And no matter what tier you subscribe at, you will get access to our exclusive patron-only podcasts. We just finished up a six-part series called Double Down that was watching uh, notable films that Siskel and Ebert had given two thumbs down to and deciding if we agreed with their thoughts or if we disagreed. So until next time, keep listening. Keep listening.